that's my wife. Nice. If I can have one. <laughs> She's like, could you give me some ice cream? And I'm like, yeah. As long as I get like a six pack of beer. And she's like, okay, whatever. So we're recording now. Do you want me to keep that in? Um, I don't know. Just depends on you. Uh, I like the Dogfish <laughs> Head brand. They're pretty good. Okay. Hashtag not a sponsorship. Hashtag would sponsor. Hashtag... Uh, open to suggestion. Open to suggestion. Because <laughs> I also liked their stuff when I could drink. Drink alcohol responsibly. Hashtag not. Yeah. <laughs> um, hashtag trigger warning alcohol. <laughs> Content warning. Um, yeah, so today we're... Uh, this is going to be kind of loosey-goosey because uh, we're talking about uh, Resident Evil 5. Um, yeah. the fifth iteration in the mainline series. Yeah, this has nothing to do with me having a beer during our, our taping. Just, yeah, exactly. Resident Evil 5 is a loosey-goosey game that uh, I think... It really uh, is. ...goes even farther off the rails with 6, but we'll get to that uh, <laughs> when we need to. Next time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this this sets it up. This is like the, the frat house party uh, that occurs like the first weekend of college and then <laughs> you try to trump that the next weekend and everybody's like still just kind of blasted and that's resident evil 6 yeah yeah but uh you know first uh let's let's talk about some of the other things that we've been consuming this time um did you want to go first or did you want me to uh um, yeah let's go ahead and have you go first okay so um yeah so the <laughs> This thing, I, I don't know how long I'll spend on it because I know that uh, Stuart and I have discussed this and um, I've actually finally gotten a chance to see it. His impressions of it were not so great. I really liked the 2021 Mortal Kombat film. <laughs> there's there's so, so that's, little... That's the sound of the scraping of the barrel if anybody wonders what the sound effect was. <laughs> there, there's so little to be angry with that movie about as a video game adaptation there's a lot to be angry with no yes no okay so so, <laughs> so hang Zach's on. getting into arguments so so hang on um i this, the first zach, off zach in this situation is like a trash panda that is defending its <laughs> trash from someone else that it thinks it's trying to like get into its goodies when really we're just trying to throw more into the trash bin but the trash panda doesn't know that yeah, I mean, so my my only like large gripe with it is that and it's it's real dumb because I don't know how else they would have been able to title this movie and make sense is that it's not technically about Mortal Kombat. It's technically a prequel to Mortal Kombat. Yes. <laughs> have you you've seen it then? As uh Yeah. I think the word is uh, I'm a survivor, but yes. Well, it's I mean, it's not as good as the first one, um, like the 1995 one. I think in terms of a video game adaptation film, mm -hmm. is the best possible outcome for an adaptation of a of a game. Well, I think I think the the first one really has going for it is the fact that it's very self aware. Um, yeah. and it has some of that nineties, like tongue in cheek humor and it delivers in that respect yeah. because when you have a buddy cop drama from like the nineties comedy drama, you, you have situations that are like, oh yeah, I expect this, you know, they're going to 
get in a situation where they're uncomfortable, you know, um, but they'll have to riff off of that. And so you get situations like, uh, you know, um, Goro's ball sack and Johnny Cage doing a split and having to hit that. And it's like, oh, okay, I, I understand where this is going, but it is kind of ridiculous. And the performance of the puppet that they used is amazing. So it sells it. You know, you, you go ahead, you laugh, and you go along with the ride. Yeah. Right there. It looks like your internet's freezing up on my side, at least. Yeah, it's freezing up on my side as well. Oh, interesting. Um, I got full internet. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Mercury, again. Mm-hmm. The thing Mercury that came through was Punching Gora's ball sack. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the thing yeah, that came it's... through was Punching Gora's ball sack and it being self-aware. Yeah, it's self-aware in that respect and, you know, enjoyable, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and this one, it's, you know, it's a hard R, um, I think, purposely for shock value. They're just like... Hey, yeah, kids, you like guts? We're just going <laughs> to throw everything out here, which I mean, you know, fits the game. Um, it's it's fine. It's fine as a video game adaptation. It's nowhere near as bad as uh, Monster Hunter. <laughs> um, no, I haven't that seen is Monster a garbage Hunter, movie. So I can't comment on that. I know it's... from people who, who view garbage movies, though. Uh, yeah. There's some people I heard that they liked whatever Monster Hunter was. I didn't see it. It just reminded me too much of the Resident Evil traumas in the past as far as films. <laughs> you just see Mila Jovovich's face. It, it it could be Million Dollar Hotel, some art movie, and you're just like, no. No, and the thing is, I don't, it's, I, I like her. I don't dislike her as yeah. an actress or anything, but as a vehicle for films, those films are just garbage. Um, yeah well i mean the so so the 2021 mortal Kombat is is um i don't know how rewatchable it is um it feels kind of like how initially watchable it is well (laughs) a lot of it it feels like it's it's uh playing catch-up and rushing to get you to the sequel which i i don't like largely um Mm. I don't know. I feel like the characters don't look dumb like they did in the Annihilation, you know? Yeah. Um, It's interesting that they're pulling from the Mortal Kombat lore, which if anyone wants a real good time, uh, go to the fandom site or the fandom wiki for Mortal Kombat. Their lore is bananas and it's like eight levels deep. (laughs) Mm -hmm. just ridiculous garbage um well it's a a little bit like uh an otherworldly soap opera you know oh yeah yeah no no it's a hundred percent a soap opera like Mm -hmm. it's i mean because they've got um let me let me click on this how many how many characters they have um yeah there's 77 playable fighters throughout the series and they all have like 
fleshed out um, tournament long length story. Right. Uh Because if you play through like they have a little story scene that wraps up, you know, Uh whatever the the thing is. And so when you have. Oh, go ahead. Well, it's funny because like from my understanding, the last iteration of Mortal Kombat had to retcon because they've they've killed so many fan favorite characters. Yeah. That they have to reintroduce them back in. They're like, okay, well, we got to do some time thing before we yeah. can bring this character back in. <laughs> well, so that is so the last one, 11 references. Um, I forget the entry. I think it's eight or nine. It's it's Armageddon, I think, is the one where mm-hmm. like Raiden sends his past version a glimpse of what's going to happen and so now there are two branching timelines of course <laughs> it's it's so ridiculous um i mean so what, honestly what like about the last mortal Kombat movie I, I think because we had that little audio delay we didn't really yeah. hit on that but tell me what you liked so that i can shit on it right after <laughs> honestly i like the uh the style like the writing is yeah i mean it's a it's a martial arts movie based on a video game right mm-hmm. um like it's inherently dumb it's it's fun to watch it's i'm not arguing that it's a good movie i think mm-hmm. it's a pretty fair adaptation of that game though <laughs> okay. in the game's lore All um right. you yeah, like got more you got more gas on that continue <laughs> All I'm saying is I want this to be the next MCU. Oh my god. I want I want a competing film series that's Ugh. just fucking Wikipedia pages deep of <laughs> Like Nitara is in this movie. Do you know who Nitara is? Just off the top of your head? No, I'm I'm not deep into the Mortal Kombat lore. Yeah. So she's um she's a vampire. Because oh, like yeah, so, yeah, I remember her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The like the in in the lore, like all of the realms are pieces of like the one god's body that the elder gods all killed and just like wood choppered up into existence, right? Mm-hmm. And so her whole story is trying to get back to the vampire realm, <laughs> but mm-hmm. in doing it, she has to go through like enlisting help from cyrax because she has to get this weird fantasy bullshit orb that will open Mm. a portal um and yeah then fight a bunch of uh uh monster hunters that have invaded her like i i could see a movie in that like that's fine yeah Yeah, you could see a movie in that because (laughs) what you've drawn together is more compelling than what was actually in the film like you 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 put a character you had the character's conflict you put how they're supposed to resolve it and then you put this journey is actually interesting which is which is better than anything that was in that movie the problem i had uh, amongst many with that film yeah you you first started out with it being a kung fu flick the kung fu is largely garbage uh, yeah like, no no it, it yeah it is the fight choreography if you're going to have a movie that relies on its fight choreography you actually have to have good fight choreography. So <laughs> like the first 10 minutes, that segment where they're introducing, they're like in the past. Yeah. That's probably the best 10 minutes of the movie. Um, yeah. All the like, oh. uh, Hanzo Hisashi stuff is yeah. fantastic. Like that stuff was cool. And you're like, Oh, I get it. He's going to be like really invested in that and whatever. But that yeah. whole investment in that you get with the character 
is largely absent. So they give you something that you're pulling for, right? And it's yeah. compelling. <laughs> then we take we take like a two hour break from that. Right. And then we finish that up in the end of the movie where mm-hmm. like he's coming back and fighting. And that's also a good part of the movie. So it's like, <laughs> why did we have to like spend time with characters that we didn't care about and you set us up in the beginning for like an investment of a thing that we're in? Because uh, what's his face? Um, well, and that's is, what I was saying. Is that a is lot it of Kang? it? Is it Liu Kang? Yeah, Liu Kang. His story completely unforgettable forgettable you know i didn't like the actor's performance which is okay i mean there's probably a lot of other things involved with that um and it's kind of like uh it's sort of middling because you're not really invested in him like he's he's not invested in what he's doing like he's trying to get away from this past where like you know he was like a great boxer a great you know fighter and um I think one of the first fights, I think he gets beat up. Yeah, I think he gets beat up in that first fight. Um, So in any case, like, I didn't really feel invested in him as a character. And he's like the central focal point conceivably for the film. Whereas like you set up like this investment from story. I'm like, oh, I want to see that movie. That would be really great. You know, let's see, uh, you know, what Scorpion fights Sub-Zero. Well, so so the the. Yeah, well, and I mean the the problem with with this movie largely, I think, is that it's it, it's kind of got the same problem that DC had when they were trying to make the DC EU, and that they're trying to make the Avengers first because like you want to know who all these characters are, and so they have so many in this one movie that it's impossible to really cover anything that makes you want to like them. For example. <laughs> So, like, really, they should be doing the Marvel thing, but they're not. They're they're doing the same fuck ups that that uh, DC did. That being said, I still found the movie enjoyable. <laughs> um, so I would also like, and I'll, I'll probably footnote this. Uh, there is a writer, um, formerly of Cracked. Um, I think he does stuff with Weird History now, but um, he wrote for Collider for a while. Name is uh, Tom Ryman. And he has two articles on <laughs> on Mortal Kombat. And the first one that I would like to point people to is Mortal Kombat. Why does Goro get teleported into the garage? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. And the second one is Mortal Kombat. Why was Liu Kang walking in the middle of the desert? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again... <laughs> Those are both very good questions about this movie. Um, valid questions. What, what was it? Um, um, the gosh, I'm not great on Mortal Kombat characters. The uh, I Beam guy. Oh, Kano. Kano. Now Kano. Yeah. Was actually a standout performance in this movie. Oh, everyone loved Kano. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoy, and I was like, okay, why don't we just make a, a Kano movie? Like this guy is more <laughs> interesting than Luke exactly. Kang right now. Um, oh yeah. So Luke King has you, never been very interesting though. Let's let's be real. <laughs> well, even in the first one, like he's trying to like avenge his brother who right. got destroyed. Um yeah. I think that actor I've seen him on other things and he's fine. I think it, it comes across as a little wooden, like his interaction, because he's so standoffish. 
Yeah. You know, and so like protective of himself as a character, which maybe with the way the character's written less than having to do with the performance. Uh, but even well, in that was... one, you know, Johnny Cage comes across as more like relatable because he's like, oh, yeah. this is crazy, you know? Yeah. Well, and and I mean, you know, the the thing about the performances in that first movie is, um, you know, I want to say that it was only the third time that a video game movie was trying to be adapted. Like there wasn't a, a great precedent for it. Uh-huh. And so I can imagine if you have these actors that are like, maybe from the theater, <laughs> uh-huh. like the case of Christopher Lambert, um, other people who had, you know, been conditioned to look like really get to the bottom of their character and how they like to get a, a real true performance from them. Can um, you just reference Christopher Lambert's theater history? Yeah. Yeah. He has a theater history. Oh, I know he does. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a little bit like, uh, it almost feels like um, referencing my experience in, in emergency services and how much it's going to help me in being an ice cream man. Yeah, um, well, and, and no, that, and that's what I'm saying. Like the performances, I feel like are wooden because they're just like, okay, so what do I go to? What is this guy's motivation? Um, he wants to prove that he knows how to fight for real. So you're gonna hit this giant monster in the nuts. Okay, all right, fine. But yeah, okay, yeah, I'll hit this guy in the nuts. <laughs> yeah, that that comes across. Um, okay. So yeah, everyone, go out and watch uh, Mortal Kombat, the 2021 film. <laughs> Do not watch that movie. Do not encourage it. The, the, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch the sequel. I'm gonna watch the sequel to the sequel. <laughs> are they pu- really pushing a sequel? Did it really make that much money? Um, I mean, given the circumstances, I think it did. I think Hollywood accounting being what it is, uh, mm-hmm. there were some liberties taken with movies that probably shouldn't be getting sequels, but are. Let's see. So the budget was fifty-five million. It made back eighty, just under eighty-four. Um, let's see. There's there's about forty-five minutes. Then the score gave it a B plus. No, definitely not. Um, there's about forty-five see. minutes of that movie that I think can be cut. Like uh, when they when they get introduced to the fact that they're supposed to be uh, like getting this tournament. There, I mm-hmm. remember fast forwarding. And then going back in my fast forward to try to get to where the next fight sequence was, where they were doing like that blood dagger spinning thing <laughs> with the vampire, yeah, I mean, which I thought yeah, was that's cool. A perfectly, yeah, that's a perfectly valid way of watching this movie too. Um, yeah, because I mean, there is a lot of fighting in it. It's not well, like a lot of boring exposition. And... There is a good bit of exposition. I remember there like is. 10, 15 minutes where they're just talking to each other, and I'm, I was just like, what? I don't even. We're, we're I'm not even invested in what's going on right now. Um, and then you get to the last fight where he gets like his little gauntlet things, and he's like fighting the Goro creature. Yeah. And then he has to like save his, um, I think his daughter or his sister. I can't remember. And um, you saw the lady that's there. And I was like, oh okay, all right, I guess fight him. Let's see this happen. All right. Is it over? Oh, God, it's finally over. So. Okay, I've tracked down sequel information. So, um, uh, so Johnny Cage centric standalone film. Um, Taslim, who uh, 
who who is Taslim? I think he played Scorpion. Let me see. Double check. No, Tas uh, Joe Taslim played uh, Sub Zero. So Taslim has been signed to a contract for four sequels. Jesus Christ. Um, the director is returning to direct the sequel. Um, the co-writer Greg Russo, uh, has been quoted as saying that the reboot, uh, can be viewed as a trilogy with the first film being set before the tournament, the second film set during the tournament and the third film set post tournament. Uh Um, let's see. There's going, they're going to do a movie for Kitana. Uh, they're doing a sequel to the Johnny Cage standalone film after the trilogy, focusing on Johnny and Cassie Cage. Uh, let's see. Uh, they're looking to do other developments in the Mortal Kombat universe. And as of January 2022, Warner Brothers has greenlit uh, a sequel with the guy who's showrunning Moon Knight to write the uh, screenplay. Yeah, I feel like they <clears throat> Warner Brothers is really, really hungry for a universe, and they're like, yeah. well, DC didn't <laughs> do it. Now. Let's <laughs> let's try to do the Mortal Kombat thing. We just want some of this universe money. Now, the thing oh, yeah. is, the performances, uh, in kind of largely, largely for like the Sub Zero and Scorpion characters, I think were pretty good and more engaging, like on screen. Yeah, they were also probably the most heavy in special effects, like the little ice particle stuff that they do. Yeah, that was cool, you know, but it's only like oh, yeah. a really small segment. Um, so those I'd be interested in seeing someone who's, uh, I guess, a little more charismatically written as a character. Yeah, like maybe like a Johnny Cage, even Cassie Cage. You know, she's kind of spunky and interesting. Um yeah, I see what they're trying to do with Liu Kang because he's, I mean, that's how you originally started the original um, trilogy, I guess you could call it. So going yeah. back home in that respect. But just, I I don't think that character was really greatly written. The Raiden, um, I thought was okay, but... Yeah, he's okay. He's kind of, eh. <laughs> he was just like, oh, okay, generic guy who's going to say some things that is supposed to be important, but... But, yeah, ultimately, yeah. And I, I think I think it's hard to if you're gonna follow like a Christopher Lambert kind of charisma, yeah, which is just like really hammy, you know, and just <laughs> really? like it's like he's like <laughs> you know just you even see like that laugh uh, in um, in Highlander, which <laughs> yeah. I mean, my wife watched the first Highlander and she's like this is amazing, <laughs> um, and so it's hard to follow that with someone who's just very wooden. And I'm sure it has a capacity for a more expressive character. Right. But one isn't given that. And if you also see like a lot of the little, uh, the VMs um, or the, uh, I guess the CGI segments for like the last couple Mortal Kombat games. Yeah. Raiden's largely very wooden. I mean, he's, he's up there in like the God realm. Um, You know, forgive me for non-specific details as far as exactly what he is. Yeah. But, um, you know, he isn't written like the same way that we would have envisioned like someone following after like a Christopher Lambert kind of character. Right, right. So that makes sense because if you're if you're transitioning from a world and as a fan where you've like taken in 
the lore given by the games up till now, I think they're like 10 or 11 as far as like sequelized, then yeah, you wouldn't want a Christopher Lambert kind of performance. You want someone a little more serious who kind of. Oh yeah. Like Cause they've, they're like the mm-hmm. games are veering into this weird territory where they're playing everything serious, but it's like, bruh, you, you, you have a flying bug lady <laughs> and a gunslinger from the 1800s, like mm-hmm. in the same world. Like mm-hmm. what are you, come on. Like, I'm not supposed to find that funny just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's a little bit tongue in cheek. You know, I like the over the top, hum- the uh, over the top violence they have with like the head crushes and stuff. Yeah, I think we did. We was there like a scene or something of that in the last movie? I feel like I saw some. Um, I don't know. I, I remember there was a um, there was a like a, a controversy because there were artists like. <laughs> For whatever reason, Warner Brothers Interactive was making the the artist look at what happens when you pull someone's intestines through their chest. <laughs> like a lot of like medical accidents and like construction incidents so they could see how bones work. And it's like, it's I mean, it's not that serious. You don't have to cause someone PTSD and make them watch something like that. <laughs> Like that's insane. Why yeah. would you do that? Like if if they're an artist, they know what the body looks like and presumably there's modeling that will will model these figures for you. You don't have to yeah. make them watch someone being torn apart by a bulldozer to yeah. really really get Goro's uppercut down right. Like that's Terrible. just not yeah. Terrible. I wonder what what you really have to negotiate with the licensing agreements for that cuz ostensibly yeah. Like that, there's a, a collection source where you can get like stock footage of that nature. It's like the like extra extra X like alternate tab on like a stock footage repository. Yeah, I don't know where you they would have picked that up. Because you imagine being the peddler for that, being like, "Oh, you want to see some stuff? Like, I got all the good stuff. <laughs> like whatever. Yeah, you I mean, want, they probably just went to like Rotten.com or." They, they probably just went to rotten.com or like faces of death or something it's like the 1990s because let's let's face it it's warner brothers like that's probably what they did it's just like here we're gonna hook this into your brain and just gonna bump rotten into- <laughs> it's just like an it's like an old bookmark the exec had for like his own personal yeah. use yeah and he's just like i'm always oh, like oh you need some of that i have I have treasure troves. I have, I, I, have, I have terabytes of terrible stuff. <laughs> He's like, some of it's like off market. Like it was custom made for me. I don't ask questions. Here's, here's the stuff they cut from a Serbian film. <laughs> yeah. They thought it was too over the top. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh. Um, uh, yeah. So let's, let's piggyback off that. I also watched Joker, which no, wait, wait, no, you meant you piggyback off a Serbian film, right? No, off of uh, Warner Brothers. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> same thing. Um, yeah, yeah, same thing. Oh, um, I wish I could unsee most of that movie. Jesus Christ. That movie is... <sighs> terrible. Just like, it's, like it's, it's worse. It's, it's like if you it's, wanted it's... to see the soul of Centipede, but up leveled to like a different kind of extreme like if you thought centipede really disturbed you yeah it's just it's nothing like that no 
The worst yeah, thing like, is it, it does have a statement, I guess, that it's trying to make. But it's just like, wow. Oof. I mean, not real. Like, it's... As far as the character. I don't mean, like, like, artistically. If this, if this type of movie were made by, like... You know, I because I, I don't really like Todd Phillips as a director. I, I don't think that he has what it takes to make a serious movie, despite this Joker being nominated for an Oscar. It's like, great, you're you're nominating Taxi Driver for an Oscar like this. This movie is Taxi Driver. Um, yeah, they made almost 50 years ago. <laughs> like, yeah. it, it really took from um, all the beats and didn't hit as hard in some places. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there, there were other things that like. I, I don't know, like as someone with a um like a, a neurological disorder, like the the behavior that he's exhibiting in the movie one is like seems physical. It doesn't like the the the, the random laughing and stuff, it's like I don't <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. I'm not sure that this this is actually like behavioral so much as it is neurological like in that oh case, yeah no, like he i don't has know, like, like yeah it, he has a hodgepodge of conditions conceivably it's a hodgepodge of conditions by someone who is just kind of flippantly like yeah yeah he's crazy pants whatever here's medicine mm-hmm. boom mm-hmm. he gets off his medicine because he can't afford it so he shoots some motherfuckers in a subway and it's like mm-hmm. i mm, <laughs> is, is that the statement we really want to be making <laughs> especially when there's all of these people out there that like idolize the joker for some reason (laughs) yeah Um, i think i think i think the joker in the portrayal that they have and also in in the comics based on like where you're drawing from his origin story is like disenfranchised and so they're like oh well let's just make the most disenfranchised disenfranchised person yeah and like let's really push him in that respect um yeah, I just yeah. can't believe that that movie made over a billion dollars in the box office. Mm-hmm. Yep, I can. Like it's, it's mind-boggling to me that that a Todd Phillips movie made over a billion dollars in the box office. Um, I saw it. It it was okay. I mean, they. Well, like they, it was okay because Taxi Driver is an okay movie. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. when it's. <laughs> And the performance uh, that uh, you know, uh, Walking Phoenix gave was pretty was pretty solid with what he had there. Um, oh yeah, I think I think yeah, he really, does a good job. Like it's there's no shade being thrown at Walking Phoenix. He does a fantastic job in the movie. Yeah. Like he can only do what is written on the page, though, to a certain extent. Yeah, I I think you have these uh, disenfranchised. Um, I mean delve into you know largely caucasian male characters and it's like if you can make like a a pseudo art piece about a disenfranchised largely hetero white male character like you hit on this gold mine of like oh i can make an artistic statement but also not really fall too outside of the realm of making this like a commercial piece yeah, I mean, you have you have the fight clubs of the world, you know, you have the mementos. Um, uh, so you have this this archetype set up for someone who's ostracized out of society and yeah. is trying to like, which which I think does a does a disservice to 
the the disenfranchised by like always having to like singularly focus on this character, you know, this, oh, this yeah. sort of archetype. Yeah. Um, but also it's like, I mean, we just kind of have to set up this scenario and people, people can sort of enjoy vicariously what this character is going to do because yeah. they also feel disenfranchised as well, which I think is a sentiment that at least for me, me personally, I think carries across so many groups where you don't you don't yeah. really have to limit it in in any particular way um but it just it comes across uh sometimes this is just mass masturbatory you know um yeah where you're gi- yeah. you're giving the audience like something exactly what they want and in the exact format that they want and so it's um oh it feels it feels a little less challenging you know which is what you want with media that's trying to focus on the disenfranchised and how they're being put upon, but we're always getting sort of the same slice of perspective in yeah. a way. So. Yeah, yeah, no, well, and and um, just from from the business standpoint, I feel like there are some good things and some bad things to come out of this, like. I guess the one good thing is that Warner Brothers is like, okay, we're going to stop doing the DCEU, even though I like a lot of those movies. Um, like, I recognize they're not good. Um, and they're just going to make well, one Aquaman's a good time. Yeah. Aquaman's yeah, Aquaman's fun. Yeah. It's fun. It's not a good movie, but it's fun. It's um, a good time. You, you just yeah. you watch it. You know, Jason Momoa shirtless. Great. But, Punches but like, people real hard. So, like... I, from a business standpoint, I don't understand why they thought it would be good to confuse the marketplace because, like, originally they were still having the DCEU, but this was standalone with no connection whatsoever to the rest of the main movies. So it's like, mm-hmm. like, I know that because I follow <laughs> this kind of bullshit, but like, someone just out there who wants to see a comic book movie, right? <laughs> Like, are they mm-hmm. going to be paying attention to that? Um, I thought one of the really cool things is that... I, have you read the DC Black line of comics? No, I'm familiar with their existence. Yeah, yeah. So for, for anyone who's who's unfamiliar, basically, they're, um, they're more adult versions of uh, um, DC characters. So, like, there's a whole line with, you know, Superman, Batman... Um, the Joker has several installments. Harley Quinn has one that's fantastic. Um, but but they're they're more adult. Like they're they're typically like bound hardcover graphic novels that that are telling a specific story. So Warner Brothers was originally wanting this movie to launch their DC Black line of films um, mm. and have them all be more experimental in nature. Um, this movie made over a billion dollars, so they scrapped all that bullshit, and they're just going to make a sequel. <laughs> Willem Dafoe is apparently going to appear in it. Oh, I don't know in heavens. what capacity. Well, no, he could be. Uh, we he could be, be Green the... Goblin. They could do no, a multiverse. No, 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 no. no, no. That's, that's how I was going with that. We all got comics, maybe. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> the, those those cross universe things happened. Because 
each of them was struggling, having a period of time where they're struggling <laughs> as publications. So they're like, I love Amalgam Comics, though. We need to bring this together. Yeah, I need I need a Wolverine Batman. All right. Dark Claw. Dark yeah, Claw. <laughs> or Batman Superman. Put some respect on his name. <laughs> There's no respect on his name. Okay. The Batman uh, Superman, which I, I read as, as a one shot. It was actually pretty yeah. fun. Um, yeah. The Batman Superman one. Um, yeah, most of those lines were actually pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they get to mix stuff up. Um, seeing Batman as like a hurt child uh, with just the power to just ferociously destroy, you know, because his first <laughs> yeah. interaction, like he just vaporizes yeah. the bad guy that just killed his parents. He just like laser beams the shit out of him. <laughs> Gone. <laughs> and so that's like instant yeah. catharsis. Yeah. But he still has that loss, so he's going to be chasing that high of vaporizing that guy for the rest of his life <laughs> until, you know, he kind of gets through it. So we won't see that until the MCU is, like, crashing and burning and, like, yeah. DC's there and they're, it's just, like, uh, you know, hypothetically the situation where, like, you've you have this ex that just, like, you know is bad for you and you shouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> but like you've hit hard times and you meet him in a bar again, that's going to be the amalgam situation if we hit that point. Um, I, I like to imagine like Warner Brothers or DC personified as someone in a trench coat, like Marvel. You want to make some money? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you want to make a quick buck, kid? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we got we got the mashups that you need. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So what I was thinking is that what you'd actually get is you'd get Defoe as old Joker, like the multiverse of Jokers. Yeah, I mean they could yeah, definitely they could definitely do a um, three Jokers story. Yeah, I mean I don't know if you've read that one, but that one yeah. is really good. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's really entertaining that storyline. Yeah. Um, because then you do Defoe's character as the classic Joker, big purple, you know. Yeah. Um. Big. Yeah. Smiley. Yeah. The the um. What is it? It, it? It's the the criminal, the comedian, and the. Well, something I gotta else. look up three jokers. Who's the third joker? I always forget. Uh, what is it? Uh, the clown. The clown. Okay. Yeah, like he mm -hmm. could he could uh, for sure depict the clown. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I would mean, love. There was, there's been fan talk about that forever. It's like Defoe is the Joker. I mean, I would love to see um, Jack Nicholson. I, I know he's retired from acting. I would love to see Jack Nicholson come back as the criminal. <laughs> yeah. Old, old and just stodgy. I mean, I haven't seen him in a bit, but. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, in the, if you remember that comic at all, like the comedian version, surprisingly, is kind of the biggest problem <laughs> mm -hmm. of, of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, he has uh, sort of the motivation that's kind of a little bit different from the others. Like he he likes what he likes because he likes it. Like he's yeah. not trying to uh, get one over. He's not trying to um, serve some other alternative motive. He's just there for the, the chaos, the madness. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so they could do that. They could have uh, Defoe as one of the older other ones. I don't know if he'd wanna wanna do that, but because then you have like the Joker element as being like 
an entity that gets sort of passed and resurrected like through lines and then there's that other bit where it's like an actually like joker takes like this immortality serum that he's got to like double up on every once in a while so he's been like living for a great period of time so i don't know which uh which direction they'd want to go with that but i mean the two of them on screen would probably be fun i i almost wish that they had solidified because i think the execs saw what they were getting in the movie and they're like, Oh, okay. This, this might be what we want to go with instead of doing this like alternate verse, like the other separate cut where it is truly an altiverse, like an alternate universe. (laughs) And he ends up like killing the young Bruce Wayne. Yeah. uh, Cause he kills the parents in that scene. And then he, I think he says some line. He says like, he's like, who the fuck cares? Or like, whatever. You know, and then he turns around and he shoots young Bruce Wayne. And so there is no Batman in that universe. Yeah. I think that would have been the stronger ending. And I'm, I know I'm it not really would that. have, right? Rather <laughs> like, than they're like mental hospital saying, but we're not really sure if like we're still seeing it from his perspective. Like, did he actually kill that woman? Did he escape? Is this just in his head? Yeah. You know, um, so I think that would have been, I really would have just slammed it home for me at least. Yeah. Um, um and uh yeah, I I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings on on the Joker. Like there are aspects of it that I really like, but then there are a lot of it is just like this is a waste of time. <laughs> the scene where Large. he kills the he kills the guy and the uh the other like um actor performance person like walks in. Uh and he, he oh, kills yeah, the other dude. Like the, yeah, the and then he the has mission. to get him to unlock the uh, the door because he's too short to reach it. Yeah, yeah, the hide impaired. Uh, I'm not like, sure on the correct term for you know. It, it it really broke my immersion in the what little immersion I had in the movie when that happened because I was just like, they're playing it as a joke to like re- mm-hmm. relieve tension. Like I can see that it's set up and staged like a joke to relieve the tension of what just happened, mm-hmm. but it comes across so fucking mean that it's just <laughs> like, I, I, I'm not laughing at that. Like, <laughs> it's like, it's like you took a shit in my Sunday and then you slapped it out of my hand. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I think they're trying to play it as a like a redeemable characteristic of the Joker character. It's not exception. <laughs> like, really he, kills, isn't he kills the guy in front of him, but then he's yeah. like, "You've always been good to me. I'm gonna let you go." You know. Yeah. Which you often get. I think it's a it's a it's a writing tactic that's used, but all it honestly it can be used as like a character trait. You know. Uh, and you see that in antiheroes or like villains to where they're like, oh, I'm really going to screw you over. But in my sense of what justice is, you know, not the commonly conceived form of justice. In my sense, you always did me right. So I'm going to do you right in this situation, yeah. even though it's not in my self-interest to do so, you know. So yeah. that's, I think, commonly used as like a as like a narrative hook to get the audience like, Oh, okay. Well, I'm still kind of on his side because he does have an ethos. It's just his own ethos, you know? Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and I mean, the, the biggest thing is like the, you know, the inciting factor of of the whole like groundswell for for jokers going out, like multiple jokers going out and people kind of like becoming vigilantes mm-hmm. like, yeah, he sees some pieces of shit being pieces of shit in a train. Um, but like the way that that's all shot up or shot up, set up and, and done with, you know, the shooting and him shooting one of them in the back and and mm-hmm. all of that. Um, I don't know. It seems like the movie is trying to make a hero out of like the Bernie gets shooting from like the eighties. The the guy that that in uh, in New York that that um, I want to say there were like three or four people, um, that he shot, and his excuse was, "Oh, well, they were trying to rob me," but it's like. Mm. <laughs> The way that some of these are shot, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> it kind of looks like that you were just shooting some people to shoot them. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I like mean, I, the way because directly from that, that context of that situation, I guess yeah. would be uh, really problematic. It, it Cause, cause are you it, familiar with the, that, that case at all? Vaguely. I'm looking it up in uh you know, Wikipedia and et cetera now to kind of reference yeah. the details. Like, and then there's, there's a fair amount of evidence. If I'm not, if I'm not misrecalling that, mm-hmm. like it was pretty blatantly emotionally or racially motivated. Uh-huh. Um, so they're trying to, it's almost like, um, if you, if as a writer, you were intentionally referencing that situation, right. Yeah. And then taking, the uh the context out of it to where it wouldn't be related to like racially motivation because we have all the yeah the antagonists in that situation just being very wasp yeah they're just white uh finance bros yeah yeah (laughs) waspy white you know finance dudes um so you're taking it out of that context yeah um you could almost play it two ways and I, i like being empathetic and playing the devil's advocate in situations so you can almost play it two ways you could say okay here's a situation that is from a visual standpoint really engaging it's not like we haven't seen uh protagonists engage against antagonists on a subway before like that's a film trope that we've seen over and over again whether it's like trains or subways etc you know, where you're uh, white knighting, you know, because you're protecting the female character yeah. that's there, etc. Um, so I could see that out of the the realm of reason, just being like, okay, we're going to take out of this particular story trope, you know, it's going to be a set of characters. He's white knighting himself here, but he's also like a little bit unhinged. This is going to be like his breaking factor. Yeah. Um, if you intentionally grab out of that context, I feel like you'd have to you'd have to portray the racial antagonist version of it. So they'd have to be, you know, racially different. Unless you're unless you're really gonna subsume like like uh, you know um, like a bird whistle, you know, like a bird. Yeah. But what is that? Bird dog? It's not bird dog. It's not bird whistle. Um, what's the term for it? A dog whistle. Unless you're yeah. intentionally subsuming it under as a dog whistle, 
Uh, yeah, which I, I don't know if that's what they're doing or not. It just it seems like a very in poor taste scene that could have been accomplished. As far as like the break of the character, I see like you have situation like I mentioned like that where you have like they're on a train or a subway and you're white knighting and yeah. so you beat up some other guys. Like that just is so common as a trope within these kind of things. But the fact that it gets taken on and then he so violently does it. Yeah. And then he like dances in a bathroom afterwards. I feel like that's how they're trying to engage that trope and like move yeah. it towards more like, oh, this is what a Joker character, how they would feel about this, how they yeah. would express it. Um, yeah. And I mean, the, the, the fact that we're having such a long conversation about it, I think, means that the intentions are fairly unclear and it wasn't as... Mm -hmm. I don't know, director or nuanced as it should have been. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's it. what they tried to do was take <clears throat> from that common action hero trope where like, I'm going to yeah. white knight, but then they were going to, they were trying to jokerize it. Yeah. And by jokerizing it, this is what you end up with. Um, and even, it, it's because they are like white, waspy like finance dudes, it it plays more to uh like a class argument, like a socioeconomic class argument. Right. Then it does like a racial argument, which I think, I think for the context of our conversation, um, like a racial. Oh, I wasn't arguing that that's what they were doing. I was saying if I, if I am not misremembering the real life thing had uh -huh. racially motivated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just, just so to be clear, I'm not saying that that's what they're trying to do with this because this is clearly not that. Yeah, so um, I, it's almost like they're trying to build, reframe the conflict as being like a socioeconomic, like class conflict, which right, I'm totally on board with. Not in the fashion that the Joker's going for. Well, it. yeah, not not in that fashion, but also like everything in the cinematography would indicate, like, yes, he is this hero. Which, again, like you said, this is a subversion of like him being the the White Knight hero or whatever. But mm -hmm. like, yeah. I don't know. Like <laughs> we have record gun violence in this country. Like, is it the most responsible thing to shoot this guy with hero lighting while he guns down someone in the back on a train? Yeah. Um, I, I don't well, know. I it just seems like a kind of a, kind of a, a reckless movie. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, there was a big argument for that initially from, you know, people who are, are sensitive to um, empowering fantasy tropes for you know, white disenfranchised males <laughs> uh, yeah. with, with guns, you know, cause statistically in, yeah. in, in the U S that's, that's been an ongoing issue. You get disenfranchised oh, yeah. people, you know, uh, if you go back to Columbine or other examples, there are lots of other examples. I'm not trying to draw a statement related to that, but it's a, it's an issue that uh, even if you ask any suburban parent of kids of a particular age, they're like, Oh, well, you know, I don't want to worry if other suburban kids or other disenfranchised youth are going to gun down my youth. Um, I think yeah. they're trying to frame it as a class struggle in the in the movie because obviously they pick these finance bros who, yeah, you know, are very waspy and well to do and well dressed. And the um, is it is his name Arthur in the movie? I can't remember. Yeah, Arthur yeah. Fleck. Yeah, Arthur Fleck, you know, is uh, is really not that. I mean, he's very disenfranchised. He's yeah, obviously has some mental issues that he's dealing with, and 
he's not getting the support that he needs. Um, and uh, the support that he needs is being cut off for financial reasons, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which is if you're from not myself, but others I know, you know, if you've, uh, you know, served in the armed forces and you have PTSD and you're trying to get support that you need, like sometimes the system historically and currently, you know, doesn't really provide you with that support that you need because of budgetary concerns or, you know, you can't get what you need scheduled at the right time. And so it's like you have this problem and people will only notice it when it, when it affects them, even though it's just, you know, devastating you, which is how I feel like the film's trying to portray that. And, um, you know, I think there are other ways of portraying that conflict, but I think the reason we get so outlandish a response is because we're talking about a Joker character. So I think, I, I think the central, at least for me, conflict between people who have that perspective and who were concerned was the fact that we're taking a really real thing, like a really real problem, really real things that we deal with in the real world. And we're throwing this fictionalized character in the narrative, Mm -hmm. which is something you do with fictionalized characters. Like you get a flavor of the real world in, but you, you add more uh, fuel to the fetishization of violence that can occur amongst a subgroup that very closely mirrors the composition of the subgroup being portrayed in this movie. Um, so it's a social responsibility. I, I want to say argument in, in defense of, uh, you know, just wanting to tell a story with a particular character. Um, I mean, because the, the white knighting, you know, that happens on that bus, like the environment that happens after conceivably, once he shoots that uh, talk show host, you yeah. have all these big mass riots. There's going to be some crazy fucked up shit happening during those riots mm-hmm. because what happens during riots is not always great stuff. No, even if the intention for the riot is, you know, um, strongly uh, coming forth from like a social justice kind of narrative. Yeah, um, and I won't delve into the validity of riots or other things yeah. like that because that's a whole nother conversation that. I don't want to touch upon in the conflict, uh, you know, in the context of this, <laughs> of this movie. Um, we, yeah. I can't really give justice to that, but yeah. I think that's what they're trying to do. I see the misgivings related to it. Yeah. Um, and I, I understand where they come from. Um, I think in ultimately it kind of has to be viewed as, uh, I guess it's a movie, you know, um, yeah. you were talking about a Serbian film, right? <laughs> Serbian film isn't <laughs> proselytizing for this guy's journey. No. You know, um, if if you weren't deeply disturbed by that film, then you are probably deeply disturbed. <laughs> <laughs> it's not advocating for, for that at all. Whereas on in this movie, yeah. there's a celebratory aspect to his actions, which They're I feel very like is used. where yeah. yeah, I feel where some of that misgiving comes from. Yeah. Um 
And now, don't get me wrong. I'm, I was not ever one of those people that were like, I'm not going to see it in the theaters because, you yeah. know, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, no, that's probably not going to happen. I, I feel um, like it's reckless and irresponsible to make a movie like this shot in this way. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you know, that being said, like, there's some good parts in it. Um, it's it's Taxi Driver, the movie. Like, it's it is, a much it is very movie. much Taxi Driver, the movie. <laughs> Yeah. Um, it's 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 very much taxi driver but with clown uh, grease paint you know and if we're <laughs> if we're gonna put up i don't even think you could do a uh you know a compare and contrast between joaquin and um de niro yeah de niro's performance i mean it's just i mean that'd be like uh you know I don't know, like slapping my dad so I could, you know, tell my mother I love her or something. Like, <laughs> why would I want no, to do that? No, they both do very well. Um, I love them both. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, and De Niro does a good job in this movie as his, you know, uh, television presenter role. Yeah, and it's funny. I mean, they had um, to bring him in almost because they're like, hey, we're remaking your movie. Do you want to play a different role? We're remaking your movie and also having having the Joker be your character from another movie that you. <laughs> yeah. You want to do that? It's like, sure. <laughs> we'll sure. I got this. a fun, I got a fun, tri- the, the, what is it? The Tribeca film fest somehow. <laughs> yeah. He's like, Oh, he's like, Oh, I, this, I can add 2000 years onto my, uh, my brain deep freeze that I was going to do when I yeah. get uh, pickled and preserved. He's like, yeah, I mean, I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Anyways, and then that was a really large segue there on a movie it was, that we didn't put as a uh, as a main um, focus. The the last thing I want to talk about, and be real quick, is uh, bed knobs and broomsticks, uh, or as I like to call it, which is fight the Nazis with magic. Um, oh, have you? Did you watch it again, <laughs> or is this from that initial watching you did a, a quite a few months ago? This is yeah, this is quite a few months ago. I just I hadn't had had the chance to bring it up uh, anywhere else really. Um, I I can't tell you the amount of times that I've watched this movie as a kid. I always forget <laughs> a major subplot of this movie. And in fact, almost the entirety of the third act is the witch uh, animating suits of armor to fight the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Um, I I just I don't know why that that's. It's real weird to me because in and you know this is from the era where believe it or not kids uh Disney was you know a couple bad movies from having to close close their studio doors um you know right around the time Jungle Book Robin Hood like all all of those types of movies came out where they were re- recycling um animations um, a lot of their live action movies were going to lower and lower budgets because they, they weren't doing too hot. Um, yeah, it's 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 a real. Um, I don't know, it's 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 locked in a specific time. I I would be curious to see what the remake of this movie would be, mm. um, because it's very strange. Like, have you ever seen it? Uh, when I was a very, very young child. Yes. Yeah. Well, so, so it's, um, you know, it's, it's set during the battle of Britain, uh, the three kids that, that follow her around, 
uh, are people that she's just ha- kind of having to take because England, uh, when when the the city started getting bombed, uh, would take kids out of the city and put them in the country where people were less likely to get bombed and they just kind of stayed with people. Right. Um, and then Angela Lansbury's character just happens to be a witch. Um, and so they get sucked into this adventure where she's trying to get her, uh, she's trying to learn witchcraft through like a correspondence course type thing. Um, Which is how you learn witchcraft for anyone who's not familiar. Yeah, and so so she <laughs> so she tracks down the guy that that is running this correspondence course. He's a con man, but she happens to have been learning actual magic because he just kind of like picked up a book and was was selling lessons out of it and it actually happened to be a real book on magic. Um <laughs> Which is kind of funny. Like that's a funny storyline to me. That's like how this happens. Yeah, for sure. Um, and um, yeah, the kids like they they you know fly around on this bed, and uh, there's a, a huge animated sequence where they're refereeing a football match uh, <laughs> between you know lions. Uh, and then I forget this movie. It always kind of just disappears from my head. I forget how they get, make it back, mm-hmm. um, but they make it back in time to see that Nazi commandos are trying to take over the town where they're at because mm-hmm. it's it's a seaside town. Um, and so yeah, she she hexes some some uh kind of animated suit or animates some suits of armor to to fight off the nazis and the kids rally up the home guard which let's be real the home guard in a place like this are like eight or nine old guys that may or may not have a hunting rifle (laughs) it still fires um yeah it's a fun movie i wouldn't mind seeing a remake of it i don't know what how they would remake it uh or what they would do but i'm i'm sure it would be um I'd really, animated. <laughs> I'd really have to, in order to feel good about a remake, I'd have to have someone who's like, okay, we're just going to do a really weird take on this material because we recognize that this is just a really weird take, right? Yeah. Because I think part of the inability for you to kind of like remember the connections is because like each little part in like a scene kind of stands out from the other. Like yeah. it's a, just a little bit weird and not like, logically connected but like thematically sort of makes sense in the same movie yeah um so i'd I'd have to be like okay let's get someone who's just like wants to embrace the weird of what this is um <laughs> and just go on with it because a let's lot of like, Disney... a, like a david lowry or taika waititi yeah yeah <laughs> taika waititi would be would be fun um because i think what's really happened and why <clears throat> people of our generation have bemoaned a lot of the Disney remakes is they're just so lazy and not, they really are. They're lazy and they're, they don't really do anything new. They're just like, okay, let's just rehash this with a live. Well, like, because- and that's, that's the thing. Like I, I finally 
decided I was like, okay, yeah, let's I'll break down and say that we can get Disney Plus because they finally went back and paid those those guys um for for Lion King. Because like the whole reason that they were doing it is they're like, yeah, this made a lot of money. And uh, hey, their contracts at the time doesn't say that we have to pay them royalties for any of this. Mm-hmm. But it's nothing is about CG live action remakes. Mm-hmm. And it's like, motherfucker, come on. Like, you, <laughs> you know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so, yeah, I mean, these these screenwriters are have probably let's see Bill Walsh. Is Bill Walsh still alive? Is Don DeGrady still alive? Uh, nope. Bill Walsh died in 1975. Uh, Don DeGrady died in 1991. So mm-hmm. these guys are dead. Yeah, like remake Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Remake uh, Blackbeard's Ghost. Give me some of that shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> deep cuts. You want the deep, the deep cuts the in the Disney deep, catalog. Deep cuts. I, was, I will say I'm, I'm surprised that Disney Plus has some of the old old stuff on there mm-hmm. like um you know they've got candle shoe on there <laughs> which is another weird movie that my wife introduced me to um it's not just the animated movies that they have in there um wow they've got a bunch of good old uh tv shows <laughs> so is, is your wife just like a, a victim of uh like the offshoots of the disney universe like her, her diet consisted a good portion was just roughage of the deep cuts. Yeah, because I mean, it was it was basically what what would have been able to be captured on VHS from, you know, wherever it was airing. Oh, man. Yeah. Did you say Candle Shoe? Yeah, Candle Shoe. It's uh, Jodie Foster, like one of J- Jodie Foster's first movies. Yeah, I've never heard of that. That's interesting. Um, I mean, honestly, it's, it's, uh, it's not a bad movie. Um, Mm -hmm. it's not great, but it's, it's again, it's, it's from that period in the seventies where, um, you know, Disney was, was kind of going on hard times. (laughs) They were just kind of put shoveling out whatever they could to, to keep the doors open. Um, Mm -hmm. It was before that, that like, because, you know, like the 80s is kind of what saved them. I think Little Mermaid specifically is the movie that kept them from going bankrupt. <laughs> um, it was it was they were like a movie away. Like if that had flopped, I'm pretty sure the studio would have <laughs> collapsed in on itself. Yeah, that must be why they're um, so uh, diversified now, like all these different empires. We think of Disney as like a tentacle monster now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, uh, Microsoft is getting that way, too. I imagine Microsoft, games, I think, yeah. is, a, is a sleeper. I mean, at least from a public consciousness perspective, because thinking yeah. about because I've always known, you know, they have they focus deep on government contracts and like business and et cetera, and like serving those and like yeah. those aren't sexy. You know, they're not sexy like Apple products, no. but they're reliable. And especially if you, oh yeah, it's a reliable reliable revenue stream. Like yeah, they can just yeah, it, government you, contracts for Windows. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> it works. It's the same thing. We can kind of like move along and like update and add what we need to. And yeah, I think that's partly why you know you look at the word interface to veer off even more of our central topic. 
and <laughs> Word and the PowerPoint interface are just monsters. Like yeah. if you look at the tabs and the bars that are available, they're just monsters because you even if you think of a way to improve the interface, you can't really redesign too much because you you veer too far away from the audience that's like, oh, this is where I expect this to be. Oh, this is where I expect this to be. And so it's it's too big of a jump. And so you get yeah. to these big hulking interfaces, yeah. which I think is uh, where we're at now with them. Because other, other interfaces have pared down, like streamlined, whereas I feel like Microsoft is just like bloated out even more, you know. Um, but it's familiar. You're like, oh, this is where I can get the, the tabs, the pace, the bulleting. This is where everything is. And I feel like a lot of their utility for consumer and stuff kind of serves that same kind of market and purpose. But anyways. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's my, me. I'm, I'm, I'm done with me, me, me. <laughs> Zach, Zach has a big internal life. He's got a big, uh, a big me, me, me space, but we all love to live in it. Um, I so mean, that was just three things. That was <laughs> it's not like I brought things. like, t- I don't, I was not expecting that to take an over an hour. <laughs> well, we, you hit on, you hit on topics that I actually cared about. So I, oh, well, good. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> no, you, if you wanted it shorter, you should have uh, talked about, I don't know, the latest Oreo cookie batch or something, you know, <laughs> I don't even know what the latest Oreos are. Uh, apparently they're very impressive from what I see from the memes. Like Oreos <laughs> just out here serving up people things that they didn't know they wanted. Like matcha green Oreo cookies? Okay. All right. That I get sounds it. good, I exactly. guess. Exactly. Exactly. Zach's like, I'd eat it. Yeah, I guess. I mean, that's fine. <laughs> um, so, yeah, going segue into my Mimi Me time. Um, I went ahead and watched the rest of uh, station 11 oh good so the last talking bit we had was for one through five yeah and then i watched uh six through ten so i have to say um i think the series is really solid i think my contention if er, er, really misgivings of my experience have to do more with personally my own preferences and perspective to do with apocalyptic kind of material. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like if you're going to, uh, if you're going to serve up apocalypse material to a larger audience, a larger audience almost expects certain things in their narrative for better or worse. Mm. Um, you know, it's the reason why I don't really watch sitcoms for the most part. Yeah. Other than a few, uh, because there are certain things that an audience expects, especially if you're trying to hit like a good segment of them. Uh, and to draw immediate parallels, um, uh, so um, let's see. I'm trying to get the titles here. Um, uh, forgive me here. Um, okay ah so for dawn of the dead the um last iteration of it with Zack snyder so modern conception um that movie ends where the main character is basically fucked um they Mm -hmm. arrive on the island 
and they don't realize or know that, oh, other people had this idea, but they were infected. So the island is full of zombies. And so you see like the camera drop from what I remember in that last moment and you hear them yell and like fight and shoot off guns as the zombies are like running in towards them on this boat. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's at least for me when I initially watched it, it was ambiguous whether they survive or not. And for me, that is um, a really strong uh draw for apocalyptic material not specifically just zombie related um because you get even um what is that last one again really bad with uh names and titles um so you have to forgive me here Ah, um, Road with Eagle Mortensen. Oh, yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. That movie is... mm. (laughs) (laughs) That movie is... mm, Says Zach. Mm. (laughs) It's tasty. Um, So... (laughs) from my under remembrance with, with that particular film as well, like it's not really a super happy ending. Oh no. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it's almost like with, uh, with apocalyptic films, like I, I expect them to be tragedies in apocalyptic material because it's, it's almost like, it's almost funny to think about that because station 11 really heavily references um Shakespeare specifically Macbeth uh which is a tragedy amongst tragedies mm-hmm. uh along with King Lear which is yeah. uh that that um particular scene where the actor Arthur um dies and sets up the stage for the you know forgive forgive the term sets up the stage for the rest of the series um which is also a tragedy so it's almost like they highlight these tragedies um, and the tragedy narrative, and they want to slightly subvert that, at least in the television um, series uh, conversion. Because from what I understand, my wife looked up, I haven't looked because I actually, I bought the book because I was interested in reading it. Uh, My wife advised that the book it, it doesn't end as as tidy and as neat and as non-ambiguous as the series does. Um, and I'll decide which I prefer for whatever reasons or prefer one over the other for different reasons once I actually finish the book. Yeah. Um, but the series almost seems to take uh, the direction where we want to... This has been a, a common theme from television fans where they hate they really love a show but they don't like the fact that when the show ends all the narrative plot threads aren't tied up the problem with that i think in in something like this uh is where and again i don't know how it differs from the book so i can only talk my about my experience with the show is that when you tie up all the narrative threads um in apocalyptic scenarios, which is supposed to be more loosely 
uh, aligned with the fact that, you know, we're trying to survive as a people. Mm-hmm. And apocalyptic media, for me, boils down to we're trying to survive. We need connections and to come, we need the connections between ourselves and with each other because we have to rely on each other. There are outside forces and antagonists that conflict with that. Um, and in order to surmount those difficulties, we, we have to work together. And there's going to be losses and there's going to be, you know, tragedies that occur. And there's going to be things we can't foresee and circumstances that we can't control. Um, but ultimately, in the end, like you have to kind of uh, bridge together uh in order to you know and build relationships because that's really all that you have in order to survive these kind of scenarios and largely at least for me and maybe other consumers of the media it's that draw of like we have to make connections in adversity um because these connections are really all that matter you know the only things that keep us moving forward the only things that keep us surviving and they're our most valuable asset amongst everything um and so I think in the first uh, five episodes, they really draw that home between Kirsten's character and Jeevan's character in making us really invested in this relationship that they have and like this connection that they have. And then also always um, through flashbacks, like moving back to that to kind of cement and solidify that. And then they have to sort of within the series draw okay how did these characters become separated which yeah. is obviously you know something that happens that we notice just by the second episode because it's put to year two kirsten's by herself jeevan's not there and she's trying to survive um so how do we we draw back to that and so that i think is handled uh really well to um come back to, I think, with my, some of, some of misgivings with how it was tied up is that apocalyptic scenarios and just real life in general, doesn't always lend itself well to tidy ending of threads. Like there's in real life and in real stories, there are never like every narrative thread, every narrative story that you have retelling of an event doesn't cement well with like a resolution like some things in life are just non-resolved yeah like some things in life just don't have a resolution so when you, on everything that you can tie up almost. yeah and yeah. so <laughs> when when you have you know how i met your mother can draw ending threads in like as a sitcom and line up everything together and the audience can like that or dislike it etc um or uh I'm going for like big popular media um, or um, gosh, what is the other one? Um, Game of Thrones. No, no, that definitely didn't leave up any threads. That just burned all the threads. At the end. <laughs> um, I mean, that's a way of, uh, <laughs> so, of resolving a thread. <laughs> yeah. It's just burning it right at the tip yeah. or, or the, the big bang theory, which I, I saw the ending from. Oh, did they Closes- end that show? Yeah, the Big Bang Theory. Yeah. Oh, I had no idea they ended that show. Yeah. So that um, gets all the threads together. It gets a nice little, largely happy resolution um, between everything that's happening. But it, it doesn't work in the media because it, it feels kind of ham-fisted when you do it that way. 
yeah. especially when you're you create all this tension and development from like the separation between the two of them. And then I talked a lot about the interaction between Kitchen's character and Tyler's character, the prophet and how there's this real, like, uh, you know, almost like Negan, like energy that Tyler has, uh, you know, where they meet and they conflict because there's just like this difference of perception or views or priorities that the two characters have. And so the series ends largely where um, Kristen's character has tried to kill Tyler's character, the prophet, but they end up having to come together in mutual interest because the prophet knows that the Museum of Civilization has a group of people that have basically sort of abducted the uh, traveling symphony to have them perform there. It ends up being that the... Um, Tyler talks about how that den, that area is just like full of like unimaginable evil, you know, whatever, and kind of setting that up. Not really. The Museum of Civilization, at least in the series, is really it's more mundane. Like these people are like tied together. Uh, they support each other in like this quasi civilization. Um, and they have like a power structure from the top on down. Um, with one charismatic leader, sort of charismatic, um, you know, leading the people together, you know, deciding what they need to do and making priorities and, and all that. So you switch from the antagonist being Tyler, and in that role, that actor really fulfilled that to this sort of like wishy-washy, like camp group that's in this airport um, that isn't really malevolent in much of any sense of the word like they're just trying to survive and exist um and so kirsten's main antagonist sort of becomes uh a partner in a sense and then it ends up being that like i alluded to before tyler's character is actually uh, a, a refugee of this encampment like he faked his own death and then he left uh because his him and his mother were going to get, get kicked out. And he just decided that, well, maybe I just need to be kicked out so she can stay there because she wants to be there. Um, whereas I don't like this life. I don't like what this is. Um, so he comes back. He left when he was like nine, maybe. <laughs> and so now he's uh, quite a bit on. I'd say he's got to be in his 20s, maybe. Some, somewhere around there. I forget the exact time jumps. Um, and so it's really like a coming home thing for him. And he becomes less of like a Negan like character and really like a child that rebelled from this township in this airport and is now coming back and trying to reconcile with his mother and trying to reconcile with this other figure who he knew before he left, who was a friend of his father's. Um, and he's trying to reconcile that. Um, and he still has this like group of kids that sort of follow him. Um, you know, the prophet's children. Um, and so he ends up resolving that through a little bit of soul searching and also a Macbeth scene, which I think is really well done, that whole portrayal, because he gets to play Macbeth. Um, the other guy who's leading it gets to play, uh, is it Julius or Gladius? I, I forget the name. Claudius? Of Claudius, yeah, Claudius. Um, even though, you know, 
he's not a romantic figure with this uh, Tyler's uh, mother. They're just power structure sharing. Um, so it it kind of takes some of the the malevolent force feel that you get from Tyler and sort of humanizes him, I guess, but in a way that you, you didn't really feel like you were set up that way. Like the initial setup for the Tyler character was just really malevolent, you know? And so I was talking with my wife because um, eventually Kirsten meets Jeevan again and they have a re reunification and reunite and because Jeevan's like a doctor slash like midwife now part of some other stuff that they showed in other episodes. Um, but I felt like they changed the tone of the series in the last couple episodes because they wanted to resolve these plot threads. But I feel like I almost wanted, because I guess I'm a sick individual, for them to retain the tone that they had in the first couple episodes uh, and resolve it, but in a way that fit the tone that they were setting up initially. Yeah. So in the series, Tyler ends up leaving again the the airport area with his mom because she decides she wants to go with leave with him. He leaves with his kids, which is still creepy as hell. He has like hundreds of these kids that he's taken from other groups <laughs> because he wants to lead them into this new world. So it's still really fucking creepy. Yeah. Um and the kids that he took before from that other encampment that the traveling sympathy goes they don't go back like they just stay with him <laughs> <They're just> there <laughs> they just stay with him along with all these other kids so he doesn't really reform his ways he just has his mommy with him now um huh. okay. and he'll still go in to other groups i imagine and try to take other people's kids because that's, that's i mean that's philosophy. what he does it sounds yeah. like he just kind yeah of... there is no before he ends up um let me take your this... kids yeah <laughs> this shared this shared book experience that Kirsten has and Tyler have because they both got this book as a gift from Tyler's dad's ex-lover. She wrote this book, um, which I'm sure is out there maybe somewhere in fan-made or actual form. Uh, you know, it's called Station Eleven. Um, so he, Tyler ends up, one of the girls befriends Kirsten, one of these lost children of his, uh, she reads the story to the girl because she's got an actual copy of Station Eleven because Tyler actually burned his years ago and he's just been reciting it from memory. Um, so that girl ends up taking Kirsten's copy and running off with it and brings it back huh. to Tyler. And Tyler's like, thanks. This is exactly what I wanted, <laughs> you know? Um, and so, you know, he's going to continue with the full biblical text, I guess you could call it now of station 11 to use to proselytize along with his mother. And so it's like, did we really reform that character in the end? Like, <laughs> is he not still going to do, maybe it's more touched upon in the books, but it seems like he's just going to keep on doing what he was doing before. Yeah. Which is taking people's kids. So why, why go through that particular redemption arc? Unless you're trying to say, okay, there's different ways to live now. Like some people want to respect the past and like, go back to some semblance of it. Some people don't want to do that like Tyler and they just want to rebuild what reality means now to them. And some people want to perform in a, a Shakespeare traveling symphony, but as long as you have your family, you know, that's all that matters. I don't know. Maybe hmm. that's what it's trying to say. 
But for me, the more satisfying ending, because um, she meets Jeevan in the end, yeah. and she says, oh, okay, we'll stop by your camp next year because we go in a cycle so I can meet your family. And he's like, oh, okay, whatever. And he limps away because he's got an injury. Yeah. And he's got you know at least four or five kids. So for me, the more satisfying ending, in keeping with the tone of the original series, which I'm going to commit a fan crime. This is what fans do, is they, they retcon what they wish had happened. Um, <laughs> so I realize I'm doing that. Uh, that's uh, that, me, that's honestly why there's so much of a problem, I think, with a lot of fans having like so much buy-in and influence uh-huh. on certain shows. Yeah. It's so like... Well, this didn't happen, and I obviously thought it was going to happen that way. So this is obviously trash. <laughs> yeah. So I, I see why they did what they did. Yeah. It's just, and I know that it's more my taste impinging upon this work, possibly. Right. So for me, um, my conception of the ending would have been more like, because uh, you have hints, and Kirsten meets one of those characters, the ones that ends up taking away her... Um, her copy of station 11, giving it to the prophet. So this character walks up to her and she has a duffel bag full of these, uh, landmines that we, we saw in my narrative retelling of it poorly of, you know, these two kids who were a child to this other township leader, like ended up killing their father because the narrative got rewritten and that the landmines erased the before. So his two kids basically erased the before and they gave him a big landmine hug and they blew him up. Um, so Tyler, because he's been separated a little bit and maybe had initially like more malevolent plans for the airport, had these kids bring in the landmines or they did it themselves because they're a little bit free willing. You know, Tyler mentions that, you know, we don't, uh, control people. We don't dictate, you know, what they do. They just do what they do. You know, we're a little more free here. He mentions so in any case, whether it's his old plan that gets reformed or they, it's something the kid group has decided to do themselves, they bring these landmines onto there. Um, and so my version would have been the kids still doing that. Um, Tyler, uh, in his playing of Macbeth that Kirsten sets up so that he can cathartically talk to his mom, threatens uh, the Claudius character with a knife that he's kind of hidden on him, his personage um, that he's not really supposed to have because he's obviously a shifty character. Uh, and he, you know, threatens to kill the Claudius guy. So in my retelling, maybe he doesn't still kill the Claudius playing character, this antagonist of his that has been like building up this airplane. Maybe instead he just blows up what they have because these kids are already there with the landmines. They destroy that structure. Um, Kirsten loses much of the traveling symphony, you know, because they're obviously just, you know, they're uh, not combatants, but they're casualties of, you know, what, yeah. what's happened. Um, the Tyler character doesn't become reformed because why the fuck would he? Yeah, like at a certain point, it's like, what? How do you? How do you go back? Like, you can't, yeah, like, like you. <laughs> he's been dreaming about destroying this place forever, and maybe yeah. the point is, is that Shakespeare, in telling of the stories, is able to like be cathartic and to give him an expression for these feelings that he has. So I, I get that, but it's almost like we've already subverted the expectations of Shakespearean 
narratives. Why not just subvert this too? And I, I, I can't remember. That's a good death, point. Does he? He doesn't end up killing Claudius, right? Mm, um, uh, I don't remember. No, I don't think so. Macbeth kill Claudius. No. Oh no! It looks like he. The, he Ham, uh, Hamlet is in Hamlet oh, stabs Hamlet. Claudius, not Macbeth. Okay. okay, so I've been I've been saying Macbeth for a while, but I actually meant yeah, Hamlet. you meant Hamlet. Yeah. yeah. So Hamlet does end up killing Claudius. So I guess they subvert the expectations there because he doesn't get stabbed. So I get that. So let's say subvert the expectations of what we subverted because it's set up that we want to see him redeemed. Yeah. So maybe he doesn't stab him, but the kids still end up blowing up this confine. And Jeevan is still there. And we've, we've had flashbacks to where Kirsten's character is yelling for Jeevan. Like, and so she either flashbacks and says that again because she's reliving that trauma, or she ends up seeing him like she does in what we get to see in the series. And she's yelling for Jeevan again. And hmm. so they end up just leaving together by themselves. Because that's what happened before. Like they left this apocalypse scenario together, yeah. hit conflict, and so now they're leaving again. But she's actually just headed home because he has a family, he has whatever. And so it kind of cyclically ties back to that again. Because in, in the ending that happens in the series, again, I don't know what happens in the books because I, I haven't looked it up. She ends up going with the traveling symphony. She even goes back to his house and... It's all, you know, it, it touches upon the fact that she has difficulties with goodbyes. And so she's able to say goodbye to Jeevan. She's able to say goodbye to Alexandra, which I get um, from a, a story perspective. But for me, this kind of material, I feel really suits like a bittersweet sort of tone, which is something that a little bit less wind up all these threads in a narrative format would have served better. Um, hmm. cause it, it would have struck me as less saturated cause it's like, Oh, okay. Everything's resolved. Like, <laughs> Tyler is not a bad guy anymore. And Kirsten met Jeevan and they're going to see each other again, etc. cetera. Yeah. Uh, which is probably a better sentiment for people that have been stuck inside with COVID for two years. <laughs> I get that. Going I, on three. Yeah. Going on three now. <laughs> But for me, like this kind of material is just—I uh, don't know—it it serves better when it 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 is a little more melancholy at the end because I think it just it stays in tone with the rest of it. So, um, are you saying then that you really liked the first half of the show, and then the second half it kind of? The thing is, though, I think they feel like almost two different shows in tone. Oh, like really? Even, yeah, even my wife talked about it. Like, it's not too different, but yeah. the setup for Tyler as this antagonist and then him just as being like, oh, this kid who just got ostracized, whatever, which can work, but it's more like they communicated him, you know, to be like a Negan character. Hmm. And in the end, okay. he's just more like a disgruntled uh, Rick character, you know? Ah, okay. Um. You know, where he's just like, ah, they did me wrong, but, you know, I can kind of see my way back to it. We're talking about early Rick. We're not talking about late Rick, who's a whole different thing. Yeah. Um, 
So that kind of felt, it just felt different in tone and maybe because they were trying to draw this to a close. It's almost like they were having so much fun with the subject matter and material in the first section. And then they're like, okay, let's just like do this weird, like get this weird tone set off. And okay, now we got to end it. You know, we got to tie everything together. And so in that tying of the things together, it sort of strayed from the tone that I was really enjoying, like the juicy, juicy tension and like that unsettling feeling in your stomach. Yeah. From the narrative. I love that stuff. You know, (laughs) it's just, mm, it's just so tasty. (laughs) And so going back to like, other people might see it as like, oh, I love this show. Like they had all this tension and then it just resolved itself. And like, I can sleep, you know, easy tonight, you know, whatever. Uh, Cause my wife was watching that show and every night that she saw it, she was like, oh my God, I had another weird nightmare, you know? And it's not <laughs> like there's, there's not super hard violence, but the tone of it and the tension yeah. in that first half is just so strong. And it's not like they don't have that in the last five episodes because uh, they do in a lot of different ways, but they don't have, um, you know that they're drawing to a close. And so they're trying to close everything up together. And so I think mm. they wanted to close it up in a certain tone, whereas I would have liked if they just continued with the one that they had set up. Hmm. So it is what it is. I won't say it's bad. I'll just say that for my particular taste preferences, I would have just liked uh the same consistency i saw in the first five in the second half doesn't mean it's bad still enjoyed it enjoyed that i watched it i'm just a really perturbed kind of individual that likes that first five episode tone and wants to see it continue because oftentimes i don't get a lot of media that's like that and so when i do it just really scratches this disgusting itch that i have <laughs> um, this kind of media. So, anyways, that's my a dirty, dirty itch. It's a dirty, dirty itch, and I just slap <laughs> more mud on it and scratch it. And it's delicious. Um, so yeah, that's my me, me, me segment, I believe. Okay, all right. Well, um, yeah, let's let's get to it then with with the uh, Resident Evil Five. Um, were they still doing the guy doing the voice? for that at this point where it's resident evil five uh, i don't think I'm, I'm not sure i feel like when i fired up resident evil 6 recently there was like a flavor of that oh, okay um, but I, I can't remember honestly so they may have stopped because um i mean this this game was uh it definitely you know, wasn't in there in resident evil 4 yeah so. <laughs> um uh so so this game itself was announced in 2005 came out march of 2009 um weird little bit of trivia on this game that i i i was very shocked to learn um it was the best-selling capcom game until monster hunter world was released in 2018 that's shocking to me (laughs) oh yeah that's why they went big with six like, it was it was that well selling um <clears throat> for for anyone who has not played this yet um i'm sure we'll discuss spoilers i don't know why you would listen to this episode if you had not played it um and how how can you really spoil this story it's like it's like a fever dream of like a five-year-old yes yeah, on a playground <laughs> after you tell them what resident evil 5 is and then you give them mescaline and you listen to them talk <laughs> 
Um, so this one is uh, third person over the shoulder. Uh, there's a lot of quick time. Um, way less puzzles. Uh, part of that, I think, is that they they were kind of pivoting to that action game genre for the first time mm. in the series. Um, for the second time? Well, I mean, for four still feels like older resident evil like this feels to me like a new direction four still has spooky i feel like what yeah for me the difference between four and five is they're like we we sprinkled in some action we sold a bunch why don't we just make the main ingredient action yeah yeah so Mm -hmm. so there's way less puzzles in this but also it's it's um the first game in the the main canonical main line uh of the series that's specifically designed for two-player co-op it's also very serious. Yeah. As, as a, like all the characters are self-serious, even in four, like yeah. there's comedic tones. It's like kind of hammy action with five. They're yeah, like, four is kind that. of like a Raimi film. This is kind of yes. like a, well, actually. So the, <laughs> this movie drew a lot of inspiration from Black Hawk down, apparently. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of like what, who, who did that? Ridley Scott, I guess. A uh, very, very self-important and and uh, self-serious like you said mm-hmm. um this game i was I, I think i was teasing with you earlier the the so the staff for this game blew my mind kind of because i'm like well where where is all the stuff that you brought <laughs> to this game because i feel like it's very beige and leaves out things that these people are known for so the producer is june takeuchi who was the director of uh, onimusha warlords um the game itself was supervised by keiji inafune who is most well known as doing mega man <laughs> where is his stuff in that like i i cannot place inafune in this game at all um yeah the 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 game itself was directed by the programmer for the original um whose name is yasuhiro ampo programmer for the original the title of a game no the original resident evil oh okay okay. he he was a programmer on that that first team um and he was the director of this one this game is such a mishmash um so yeah they they cited black hawk down as an inspiration for the setting and for the atmosphere they wanted all of this game to take place in daylight Hmm. and there's a couple of portions that don't like where you're inside and it's dark and spooky or, or whatever but for the most part like this happens over the course of a day um it's a it's kind of a wild ride. Um, it got dinged a lot uh, by the media for the racist imagery in the game itself. Um, the voice actor for Shava, uh, who and who also did the mocap, um, said that no, she did not feel like that 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 was the intention of the game, given the series. Um, also, the British Board of Film Classifications evaluated the game and landed on no. So take with take that with with whatever importance you will. <laughs> so they, I can they classified still see... it and didn't find racial 
just gonna be right right because yeah like um so so in in england like pretty much any piece of media has to go through a film classifications board to Mm -hmm. make it through it's why in the 80s you had the the whole like video nasties thing with Mm -hmm. with horror movies on vhs um and so they evaluate it for different things that are either positive or negative for the community at large yeah, and England has never been known for any sort of racism at all. No, no. <laughs> well, no, and that's what I said. Like, take take that yeah. with with a grain of salt and take it for for what it's worth. Um, but yeah. I, I think I think with uh, to to touch up on that point specifically, if you if you view it within the lens of RE four, like is RE four specifically racially motivated against Spaniard people? Yeah. No. Not really. I mean, there are a class of people that are there, but yeah. I think when you when you get uh, the costuming and et cetera for the enemies, where they're like wearing like Zulu masks and yeah. other things that are are beyond my expertise as far as like siding origination, um, yeah. you know, they want to go bigger and better in the bad guys, so they want to go like more garb, more costumes, etc. And yeah. so they draw from cultural material to make their enemies and you know the enemies in the end of re4 are also like caricatures like they're in big robes you know they have these big head things on but they're like cultish sort of caricatures yeah they're not like yeah (laughs) yeah they're not related towards like a cultural uh you know underpinning of a class of people and so i feel like as capcom as a developer you know they've they've had issues with that in the past um you know where it's like they're trying to make something entertaining and they're not really considering or taking out of a cultural context and like viewing it as a lens it's more like oh this is a game let's just like make you know make this funny yeah Um, and it doesn't it doesn't help that you know japan is not the most progressive country culturally well, not, i mean they're not ethnically diverse <laughs> at all i mean no statistically yeah um yeah so so like i tend to side with the media section of this going mm, some some of this is pretty fucking bad <laughs> um, yeah. now that being said um because it is a two-player game like i'm this game is not great um, I have good memories of playing this game because it was um, like one of the first games that I had right after my wife and I got married. And, you know, I have good memories of sitting and playing the, through this game mm-hmm. um, co-op um, because that's a, a, a different mode for the series. First time that they, they did it. Um mm-hmm. It's way better. I, I don't know how the AI works on this because I've never played this with AI. It's not very good. I can say that as someone who beat this game with the AI. Yeah, uh, it's um, it's it's much better for the couch co-op experience, I think. Um, just because I can't imagine that that Capcom's AI AI programming it was was very good in 2009. If it's not good in 2022. <laughs> It's it's <laughs> Ashley it's Ashley two really for five. Oh like it's no! Ashley with a gun trying to shoot things. I remember one particular segment of the game where oh, you're trying no. to pull this lever, 
you have to pull this lever because I think it's a Wesker enemy. I, I can't remember exactly. And you're trying to shut this gate on him. In order to shut this gate on, like your secondary character has to perform that action while you're doing these other things and like running around. And that I had to play that, re- that segment several times over because the behavior was just odd or my Shiva, um, you know, sidekick was getting beat up on for whatever reason. And it was, it was less, less fun than it was frustrating really. So be, be, yeah, you know, take that for what it is. Yeah. I mean, I also will say that this game, um, it's, I always like it when series introduce new characters, because if you're following along on a timeline, like Chris would be what in his forties at this point. (laughs) Um, Let's see. Um, I also don't like Chris's character. Like mm-hmm. he's kind of a joke. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, if you think of it, the last uh, sort of big push we had for him was in one and then like the remake of one, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, cause yeah, he's not in four. Um, mm-hmm. He's not really in three not re- yeah like he's mentioned in three but yeah like he's not a a playable character um and so the whole setting of this game is that he's an agent of the uh bioterrorism security assessment alliance the bsaa um who come up in the future mm-hmm. um and he is dispatched to africa and he has a new partner shava alomar who i think this is the only game she's in right yeah, she might be as like an additional character and maybe multiplayer modes or some of the offshoot games, you know? Yeah. Um, but I don't, she hasn't appeared in any mainline games, in my memory. Yeah, yeah, she's only in five, which mm-hmm. is very strange to me that that's mm-hmm. <laughs> um, something that they would do for that. Yeah, she's a um, fun character. Um She's fun. She's got some one-liners. She makes fun of Chris, which I like. <laughs> which I like. I like people that shit on Chris. Yeah. Um, well, like, I mean, this movie is, or this movie, this game is so, like you said, self-serious. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, there there are sections of the game where like Chris sees a photograph of Jill. And then it, it like zooms in and it's like slow music. Mm-hmm. What happened to Jill? Anyway, back to killing <laughs> hordes of zombies. Um, like it's just it 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 tries to take itself way too serious, um, which is a problem because it's ultimately about gunning down as many zombies as possible while you try to get to the main bad guy. That's serious business, Zach. Serious business. It's a lot of quiet. You still there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think we're we're experiencing another of the uh the connection being unstable for some reason uh, okay maybe today's the day that everybody does their podcast over uh, a hosting service where we're having issues <laughs> yeah <laughs> that might be the case it's um the big podcast sunday bump if you weren't aware the the Sunday bump. Yeah, all um, two dude pairs do their podcasts on Sundays. Did you know that? Yeah. 
you know, there's a, there's a lot of them out there too. <laughs> oh my God. Um, let's see. So additional content, they, they didn't have any, any, uh, DLC on a lot of the ports I saw. Um, they did have verses on, uh, looks like Xbox live in the PlayStation store, which was like, uh, like a point based, um, how many Magini can you kill? Uh, mm. And then survivors where you hunt each other while also killing Magini. <laughs> so um, yeah, like this, this game just kind of zeroes in on, well, what's the action in resident evil murdering infected people. Yeah. Okay. That's the story of this game. We're going to murder infected people until we get to the end where we're going to try to murder an infected person <laughs> i mean in fairness i mean there's some stuff like the flower that gets brought up here which is like the mm. the start of the original progenitor virus mm -hmm. so that was interesting but it's only because the game like takes a break to to touch on that yeah um and so that i found interesting oh it came from a flower that causes weird disease things and they they got the original progenitor virus from that. That's interesting. All right, let's go back to a boat where we're shooting Wesker because <laughs> he's a giant tentacle monster thing. Um, yeah. I'm not even sure if it's Wesker in that case. I think it's another. Uh, it, it is because is it? Um, I remember finally both of both me and my wife gave up in frustration because of the. There was a so. Autosave, I think this, this is the first time that they, they did autosaving in, mm. in the series. And so there were some very weird specific points. So we got all the way to the end of the game. And, you know, you're fighting Wesker after a uh, plane crash or a helicopter crash on a piece of rock. It's also volcanic. And where the game saved, it, it was in an impossible place position for either one of us to move without being one hit killed by wesker like no matter where we reloaded from and it's like i'm this is <laughs> this is frustrating and not fun i feel like the the exact same thing happened to me uh in yeah so in i've never recently. seen the like end of this game oh um, really yeah. yeah yeah no i remember being on the boat and then i died in a position the problem, I think, for me was I didn't have enough in ammunition uh, mm. by the point that it saved because I was using the wrong kind of ammo, I think, for that situation. Well, that the thing with scene. the fight, apparently, is that you you don't use any... Like, you, you use whatever, like, machete, I think, you have, and you attack, like, his gl glowing red spot or whatever, mm. um, which they never make clear either mm -hmm. apparently from from what i've i've gathered online that is not made very clear that you're not supposed to shoot <laughs> yeah i think it's also uh, a consequence of why i beat it may have to do with the integration of the uh, the dynamic difficulty curve that they started doing in re4 oh, if you're okay. familiar with you mentioned that initially i think way back when yeah uh, but i don't think we touched upon it in the last episode where the game will determine how difficult it wants to be. Yeah. Um, based on like, if you're just on a normal difficulty based on how many times you've died, how much ammo you've used, uh, 
in metrics related to that and will mm-hmm. scale up the enemy difficulty, like how much hits they take, maybe some of their behavior in order to like, okay, if you keep on dying, it'll scale back progressively the difficulty level yeah. without you having to choose a lower difficulty. Um, and so I think if that's my understanding was still implemented in five, that's why I was able to beat it after dying quite a few times because they they would scale back like the level of like bullets that were needed or et cetera in order to beat that particular boss. So I remember being stuck on that for a little bit for a couple yeah. tries and then I was able to get through. So. Yeah. Um. So yeah, like I, I don't have a whole lot to say about this game, honestly. Like I, I was telling you before we, uh, we started recording, like I, I like this game for the, the memories I have playing it, but I fully mm-hmm. recognize that it's not, it's not as like, it's not a high point in the series. Like I feel like, Resident Evil started out at a pretty high place. Resident Evil 2 amped it up. Resident Evil 3 kind of fell a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, 4 shot way up, and then 5 is kind of this descending yeah. fall uh, that you have between 5 and 6. And then I feel like 7 shot up again, and then mm-hmm. 8 is kind of <laughs> the downward. Yeah. It's it's interesting. Um, I, I enjoyed eight for different reasons. Um, yeah, not as much as seven for other reasons, which we'll we'll get into that later. Yeah. But it's, I think the, at least from the major companies, the um, the aesthetic and the intent is almost towards like innovation, and you see that with uh, with Nintendo particularly. Yeah, like they want to make new things. Like mm-hmm. with uh, the Labo that they had, you know that cardboard kind of setup thing. Yeah. <laughs> no one, no one in their right mind. Like if you ask Microsoft and you ask Phil Spencer, and they're like, "Okay, we're gonna make a an attachment that's just basically just cardboard, like some cardboard that you attach." Phil Spencer would look and be like, "What? What the fuck are you talking about?" But Nintendo's like, "Yes," you know. And I think you get stuff like the Wii Motes from that. And you also get stuff like the Switch. Yeah. You also get stuff like the Virtual Boy. Yeah. You know, uh, and for things that are less successful. So you get like the Rumble Pack, which was fun at the time. You know, um, and you get uh, their N- N64-like controller design, which is still weird now when you look at it in context. Like this three-pronged... Yeah. I don't have two and a half hands, bud. I've got three or two. Um, you know, and let's... so you have multiple ways to hold it, I guess. So it's like that that Japanese gaming. Maybe it's innovation. Maybe it's something related culturally. But for me, myself, I only experience it in a, in a gaming context. So I'm not sure how much cultural underpinning there is for that. Well, but, I feel uh, like part of it is Nintendo... Um, my understanding is that, you know, because Nintendo is so old and because the NES and SNES days were so lucrative, um, they could have like five or six failed consoles in a row and just like, OK, well, we'll try a new one next year, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like they're not really bothered with in the same way that I think Microsoft or Sony are yeah. in terms mm-hmm. of like having to chase um 
like the next big thing consistently. Like yeah. they, they have the padding, like the financial padding to be like, yeah, we'll put some glass and some cardboard. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's see if people buy this shit. Let's see if people buy this. <laughs> you know, um, you know, or like their ring fit and et cetera, but not to veer too off. So to come yeah. back to uh, the Capcom segment is, you know, they, they have like 30 different versions of Street Fighter 2. Right. Um, but they also have to where like, oh, Resident Evil 4 was successful because we included more action. Let's even include more of that. Yeah. And then 5 <laughs> successful. And I remember I remember playing 5 initially and being like, okay, I kind of see what they're doing. Um, and then seeing like the action elements of it and like fighting bosses. But then it, it became less atmospheric. And then it was relying more on the mechanics. And again, I think you you can't really rely on that if that isn't your central focus, like, because mechanically, yeah, I can shoot these whatever warriors, you know, you're trying to put up here, or I can shoot all these people, you know, that are coming in with me and they're like super Zack Snyder fast zombies. <laughs> um, it's okay, you know, but it's like, this isn't why I played the game originally, you know, yeah. and four had enough there that was a little bit different, still had some spooky stuff was still sort of tongue-in-cheek and humorous, so it still had me there. Whereas 5, at, at a certain point, I was kind of playing it just to beat it so that I could like get yeah. to the end of it and see Chris punch a boulder. Um, and so I was like, wow, they really did this. Like, I'm going to have to quick-time this boulder punching. Um, they love quick-time events. And I think part of it is... 6 is even worse, though. At six is worse, but I think part of that is because they're so heavily focused on co-op. You can't really do a whole lot of good puzzles mm -hmm. with co-op, which we'll bring back for ne next time with Resident mm -hmm. Evil 6. You can't really do good puzzles. And so it's like, oh, well, what's the closest thing to a puzzle combination? Quick time, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see how that works. Yeah. <laughs> I remember fighting this uh, monster, I think, that was like flying. And then Shiva's character had to like try to shoot at it, and yeah. it's abysmal. Like, yeah, just like she's just like pellet shotting at it. And I, I forget if I forget if they do like actual uh, loadouts. So like the are the weapons and stuff that you give your side character influence what they're using. Yeah, you know. And so like their main weapon, maybe they don't run out of ammo with, but the ones that they do, like eventually they they do run out of ammo with I, I can't remember specifically um but yeah it just needs leads to a not really engaging experience for me uh especially when you focus on action for me in action games like okay if i want to play a pure action game i would play like a call of duty or like a battlefield or something like that yeah because i want to do gonna, headshots do, yeah maybe i want to play with other people but if you're trying to build like an atmospheric world to support that you it needs to have a little more character related with it and i just don't feel like the game really shines in that aspect other right. than you know maybe if you're you're couch co-oping so yeah yeah i mean i could go over the whole story again but it's maybe we'll we'll save that i don't sake. think that they'll like i i don't think that they will bring back the story for five because like they, they don't they haven't referenced any of it yeah, like other than having Chris pop up here and there. 
Yeah, I mean, the BSAA and Chris being part of the BSAA is, like, touched upon and focused in 7 and then especially yeah. 8, yeah. Uh, you know, Village. Um, I think they knew the fans didn't really, like, love that, what they did with 5 and 6 so much, especially with 6. Yeah. Um, one thing about game companies, not just Japanese game companies in particular, they do notice the sales of something. And if their name isn't Paul W. Anderson, they also notice the fan reception to these things. And they're like, well, it sold well, but the fans weren't really on board with it. So let's, let's do something different, which I think is how we ended up with seven. Um, and they listen to the fans, which is how we end up with eight. That is not as scary as seven is because there's legit people who cannot play seven because it's too yeah. spooky. And which is funny to me because I, I feel like there are scarier games out there. Like Five Nights at Freddy's, well, and, and it may be just what people find scary because mm-hmm. like Five Nights at Freddy's like, well, like is a way scarier game to me than mm-hmm. <laughs> Resident Evil 7. Yeah, yeah, you get you have some tension elements in 7. Um, and I feel like if you're playing it VR or if you're, you know, just focusing on the first person view. I get why you'd be scared of it. I think it's the same kind of crowd that's like, oh my God, like a haunted house is too much for me. There's me. I'm just like, it's just a bunch of guys playing around and girls in makeup and having fun. So to me, yeah. it's fun. You know, it's a yeah. fun experience. Right. Some people, um, I think their sensibilities or whatever create a situation where they just feel the danger impulse too strong. And so they're right. like, they end up punching people in the face in the haunted house. <laughs> and it's like, it's not that serious, you know, but I can't dictate how your individual system responds. Like if that's how you experience it, you don't have to play it. But yeah. uh, I do wish, you know, they'd leaned a little harder on the horror for eight, like they did in seven. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, to come back to the, you know, the companies and their direction, you know, they listen to fans and tailor and course correct, but that each time they do a course correction, uh, especially for the Resident Evil series, it, it ends up being a different kind of game, you know, even if they're trying to make it in the same spirit, because they're trying to do something else. Yeah. And add on. And I can, I can respect that. So I at least, at least respect that component. Um, but we'll see. It's, it's, uh, it's a roller coaster ride from a fan perspective. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm actually looking forward to our Resident Evil grab bag episode that we'll have. Yeah, that's going to be where where we'll we'll talk about (laughs) our plan, like what we would like to see for the future of the franchise. Oh, Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I am. I I think I've said my piece on Resident Evil 5, like. I know that this is going to like I'm looking at the counter now and it's an over two hour episode, which I, I did not anticipate. For well, I mean, honestly, the last couple have been longer than that. And I think part of that is due to just how. Um, RE5 feels like an experiment. It's not really an experiment to our tastes from yeah a creative perspective, but, you know, yeah. we understand why it's there why it exists and we you know we enjoyed it in our own fashion yeah yeah because yeah. like this isn't i don't have memories of this game of being like 
I can't wait to be done with this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like I legitimately had fun playing it. Uh, I was playing it couch co-op. I, I uh, have not tried to play it by myself. So, yeah, um, yeah. Even solo, I enjoyed some some portions of it, but it's just yeah. uh, it's a different kind of game. It's totally different. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, final thoughts on five. Um, I hope they don't make another one. <laughs> <laughs> not like this. It's, uh, you, you get to the point where like branching storylines, like grow even harder and they just have a real boner for that. And six, um, you know, you get Wesker's illegitimate son who just like appears out of nowhere <laughs> You know, you get, oh, six is such a fucking train wreck. I love it. You know, it's it's another thing. I think you just build on the foundation for five. So yeah, five. I feel like was starting to go off the wheels, and then they just they went off the whole tracks. You know, yeah, and a lot of that. I think you were talking about it um, last time in four. A, a lot of that. I would say is is them kind of going, oh, OK, well, those the movies that Paul W.S. Anderson makes make a lot of money. What if we made our games more like the movies? Oh, Jesus. Uh, I mean, that's the sense I get really with with five and six. Oof, um, yeah. And then after yeah. six, they were just kind of like, OK, well. <laughs> Fans hate this. Well, it's like, because. Lot. These these games enter production so far in advance that like it's it almost it takes a couple before you see the response to the bad thing mm -hmm. <laughs> from years beyond but or before because you know they had the problem with with Resident Evil Four even coming out <laughs> because mm -hmm. they they would you know they're they're not going to go back to the model where they're like well we've got seventy percent of the game but we're gonna start over now. Yeah. No, they're gonna they're gonna finish that game and put it out. <laughs> like... yeah. Productions productions a little different now. I yeah. can't envision a world where you'd have four false starts. No for a game now. Not in a triple A gaming company. That's just no. way too much investment. Yeah. Um, no, like at that level, you're you're talking about hundreds of people working on something and then having to start over four times mm -hmm. before you get your final final uh vision. Um yeah. And, and it's, in it's case, funny they walked away from certain games that I think would be way, not way more interesting. Would be also be interesting takes in the Resident Evil universe, mm -hmm. um, which they could go back to. I mean, we uh, spoilers for eight here, but um, yeah, <laughs> we have confirmation that uh, you know Ethan's character is uh, at play in the universe somehow yeah. at the end of eight. You know, he's they've looked at the character model. He's like far off in the distance. He's next to the car, you know, with uh, his daughter, I guess, uh, Lily. I can't yeah. remember what her name is. Um, so and uh, so maybe they're doing the ghost RE4 thing, you know, that they thought about before. Maybe Ethan's like a spiritual entity now, you know, and so they're just going back to stuff that they already did. So we'll we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Um whether we go back to third part, you know, third uh, person view over the shoulder or we go to, um, you know, first person view again for this last in, uh, I think, this trilogy of games, um, which is funny if, if to take a moment to think about it, you could look at uh, every mainline game as being part of a trilogy 
because thematically they're pretty in line with each other. I can't uh, see four, five, and six being they part are of the trilogy. They're yeah, yeah I, I know they are. They're, but... No, but they, they are from the thematically action oriented. Yeah, like and they build on each other in that sense. Yeah, it's just weird to think about. I'm, I'm thinking like the initial thought of of mm-hmm. referring to them that way. It's like, yeah. I don't like four, but I, 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 I <laughs> it's weird to think of it being in the same vein as a five and six. But no, yeah. I mean you're, you're completely right. Yeah, one, two, and three for sure. Four, five, and six. They amp up the action. Seven. They went back to horror. Eight. They did a little bit of horror and action, and then maybe nine. We still stay in first person view if they want to keep it that way. I would hope um, so. Or we go to third person and more action oriented because they're building on the action perspective. So yeah. we'll see. All yeah. right, that's my piece on five. Not a lot, not a lot of there, but I didn't have a lot of meat on the bones for that that card. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, and you know, the the book club book is Stephen King's It. So Stuart and I will be talking about that in a, a little while. Um keep reading those watch the uh mini series watch the movies they're all fantastic <laughs> mini series is a really interesting watch if you haven't seen it before it's very interesting um i it's if if for for younger people who may not know um if you see photos of tim curry dressed up as a sad clown smoking a cigarette while holding an umbrella <laughs> that's behind the scenes of that mini series <laughs> You're familiar with the memes. We're talking about the OC. Yeah, so. <laughs> we're talking about OC. But uh, but yeah, no, um, next episode, uh, it should be. Let me pull up the schedule that I have here. Uh, it should be you and me discussing Resident Evil 6. Mm-hmm. Can't wait to see how long that one is. Because so painful. It's uh, it's it's interesting. It's got some some twists and turns. You know, as an action game, I could see it. I, I probably need to up the difficulty level before I finish it because yeah. that's the way I can see it being engaging. Um, yeah. yeah, my book club uh, read is Station Eleven. Uh, if you want to hop onto my alternate book club that doesn't exist because <laughs> I won't be holding a podcast on it, <laughs> I'll just be reading it by myself. So, it's good stuff. Yeah, no, I, I definitely want to hear your your thoughts and opinions on the book versus the show, though. Yeah, like and subscribe to that podcast that doesn't exist for that one. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate it. All right. Bye. Bye-bye.